Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. We are so excited to have with us today a friend of mine. His name is Micah Redding. It is a real treat to have Micah here, and we're going to discuss a topic that I personally am in the midst of learning about. It's called transhumanism, and Micah is going to share with us a little bit about his journey um, and exactly what transhumanism is. I know for some of you, that may be a brand new term. Micah, welcome, and thank you for being with us. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. It's awesome to be here. Before we jump a little bit further into Christian transhumanism, if you could pick an actor to play you in a movie. What movie, what actor or actors would that be? Mm. <laughs> um, I think it would have to be. Um, so the the movie would probably be uh, starring uh, Patrick Fugit from uh, Almost Famous um, right. as this kind of like bewildered kid, you know, just kind of stumbling around <laughs> in in the world. And uh, then he would probably have like a lot of kind of like dream sequences where he was played by in a, you know, kind of his later life by Pierce Brosnan. So that would be <laughs> that would, that's kind of my <laughs> uh, yeah, that's kind of my vision of uh, w- what life was like for me, you know, growing up. So mm-hmm. that sounds pretty awesome. Lots of dream sequences, <laughs> lots of different planes of reality. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> well, and Pierce Brosnan has one of the most ludicrous and um, and underrated um, uh, James Bond films of all time, mm-hmm. it, it, which he um, is called Die Another Day. He, I think he um, gets caught in a, spends seven years in like a prison camp, um, grows this magnificent beard. Uh, is being tortured daily, breaks out of that, um, swims across the uh, the uh, waterfront out in Hong Kong and walks into a uh, kind of, you know, five-star hotel and demands his regular room. And when I saw that as, as a kid, I was like, this is, <laughs> this is like my ideal uh, is to be the kind of person who um, dripping wet will just kind of, you know, wander from, you know, in from out of the wilderness and can walk in, you know, into where uh, billionaires are hanging out and just kind of, you know, feel like, eh, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's pretty stinking awesome. I just realized (laughs) as you were describing that scene, one, I've seen that movie before. And two, in Mm. that realization, you just recovered a repressed memory of my... (laughs) Um, <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, yeah, that, that, all, everything that you just described is like, oh, oh, what? No, I, I can picture. I've seen this. I've seen this scene. I, yes, that makes me want to go watch it again. I haven't watched a Brosnan. It's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful movie in the most ridiculous way. Like uh, James Bond, people will not uh, be a fan of this, but it, it is uh, fantastic. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. You know, as listeners know, kind of the theme of this podcast is this no- notion of uh, permission to be, this idea of um, 
you know, everyone's on a journey of some sorts, um, whether it be a faith journey, a spiritual journey, um, physical journey. Often it's, you know, kind of a combination thereof. And what we found, both Becca and I, is that in people's experiences, there is, it's not always just a one pivotal moment. Sometimes it's a series of moments. Sometimes it's an ongoing, gradual thing. Sometimes it's more um, drastic, but there is often something that they could point to, a person, an experience, a relationship, an event, an idea, perhaps, that proved to be this permission-giving thing. It, 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 um, it either changed them from kind of who they were before to who they are now, or often, more often even, it was the thing that kind of freed them or gave them permission or liberation to be who they always really were, but for whatever reason couldn't be, maybe for... Maybe there was some sort of institutional obstacle, you know, in, you know, be it religious or otherwise or emotional. Maybe there was a trauma or something like that. So first off, I mean, it, it is, can you name that or can you point to that in your own story and if, in your own journey? And if you can, uh, tell us about it if you're, if you're open to that. Yeah. Well, there's, there's been several kind of key moments that I, I kind of look back to, um, one one of them was when I was kind of a, a young person, and then um, one of them was more recently, uh, and they're both connected. Um, so the, the first one, you know, I, I grew up um, as a preacher's kid uh, in the Churches of Christ. It's a small kind of fundamentalist, conservative, religious uh, group, and um, and we were, you know, I, so I was in all these different churches, churches growing up. And uh, one of the things they taught us was to study for yourself. And so I just took that seriously in a way that my Sunday school teachers did not expect and, um, and wound up with all kinds of interesting questions and, and um, ideas and all this kind of stuff that didn't quite fit the mold that I was coming from. So one of the things that really kind of changed things for me is when I really kind of encountered just some some writers like C.S. Lewis, um, writers like N.T. Wright, people who had were plugged into kind of the larger stream of Christian thought. And the biggest idea for me from that was that um, that was kind of struck me was this idea that for these people, um, Christianity wasn't about abandoning the material world. It wasn't about the rejection of materiality. It was actually about how good they were and thus how we were. It, it was necessary, given how good the material world was, that we actually engage in working to transform it. And that, for me, changed my entire perspective and ultimately changed my entire life. And but it just it set me on a different kind of trajectory of of exploration and thought. Was there one was there a specific age that that happened? Like, I mean, mm. like middle school, high school, like, yeah, I was actually quite young. Uh, I think I was uh, probably around 13 or 14, I would say when I really started thinking about this stuff. Um, I had been, you know, studying a lot on my own. Um, and I was really, really kind of reading all this stuff about like Bertrand Russell's why I am an atheist. And I was, and, and I was, you know, and I was like, well, am I going to become an atheist? You know, cause everybody else who's reading this stuff does. So, so, um, 
And my parents would have said yes. You would be yeah. <laughs> and you know, it was it was an open question. And when I started reading some of these um, authors, all, all of a sudden I had a different vision of what religion could be about mm-hmm. and what it could mean. Do you feel like you were brought up in a household that gave you that freedom to do that, or is that something like they wouldn't have been happy with, or you know what I'm saying? Was that encouraged? Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting because. Uh, I grew up in a big family and what each of us kind of got out of it was very different. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, um, I knew a few things kind of growing up. One is that we were moving around to all these different, um, all these different churches um, Mm -hmm. every few years. And so I knew that churches were different uh, from each other. And I knew that my parents weren't quite the same as any of those churches either. Hmm. They had a slightly different viewpoint. And, um, and I knew that they disagreed on some key things with their parents. And so I took that uh, as a real, I, a real kind of, um, commission to go out and figure things out for myself. Um, now they weren't always thrilled with what I <laughs> was <Yeah>. figuring <laughs> out or coming up with, um, by any means, but I took that as part of, you know, I, I kind of was like, oh, this is what we do. You know, we grow up and we, we figure things out. And, um, so I, I had that permission, even if it wasn't maybe explicitly, um, granted. That's so amazing. Just as a parent myself, that is something that I hope somehow is communicated to my child. Cause I would love them to have that freedom that you just spoke about. Um, cause it, it is really freeing to have that. It's like a gift of exploration, mm-hmm. um, instead of the gift of fear. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's it's really hard, I think, especially in, in that kind of a context, that's not what a lot of people pick up, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the thing that a lot of people I know picked up was just this, like, mm-hmm. everything has to be, you know, locked in these specific ideas, these yep. specific beliefs, and any change of that is disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for a lot of a lot of my friends, you know, they, they did go through some kind of crisis, um, later in life when they realized like, Oh, everything they said can't be quite yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but I, I had to deal with that when I was, you know, 12 years old. So <laughs> that's amazing. That's I mean, That just speaks to who you were at that age, even. Wow. Cause I feel like I mean, I've never, of course, been a 12-year-old boy myself, but uh, <laughs> but I just feel like at that age, it's that's a deep journey in all the best ways. It just mm-hmm. blows me away. So you mentioned there was probably two different time periods. So, you know, that being the younger age, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. when, when was the other? Yeah, well, a few years ago, so, um, you know, I... I <laughs> I went to college. I, I graduated from college. I um, had a, a music career. I, I did a bunch of different stuff. And um, a few years ago, when I was kind of crashing out of one career trajectory and trying to figure out, um, you know, what to do and what I cared about and what I valued, I started looking back over my life and, you know, saying, well, what what is it that I still care about from when I was from when I was younger? And what I really came to realize I had done, and I was aware of this, but 
had kind of suppressed it or ignored it is that, you know, this kind of initial realization I'd had when I was a young teenager had become um, this really inspiring and, and motivating idea for me. But as I got um, a little bit older, I got college age and so forth, I uh, found other ideas that I also couldn't just kind of let go of easily. Mm-hmm. And gradually those ideas and my need to kind of reconcile those things and make sense of it, um, squeezed out my, uh, you know, a lot of what kind of inspired me and motivated me as a young person until the point where, you know, as a a 30 something year old, I was kind of totally cut off from that. Hmm. And, um, and in thinking back about, you know, everything, I realized I had let a set of expectations I had absorbed unconsciously shaped the whole direction of, you know, over a decade of my life. Um, oh, wow. And I realized that, in fact, like I had to get back to, um, you know, how what I was as a teenager. And, it, and it's kind of so silly because mm-hmm. it's not like um, – I was like reliving my teen years, you know, it's not like the the kind of, you know, high school glory days or something like that. It's actually because they were not very glorious. Let me tell you. Um, And, uh, but it was, it was realizing what had given me joy and what had given Mm -hmm. me motivation. And, and for me, that was very much about like these core ideas. And I had to um, let go of a lot of things and get back to those kind of core motivations. Um, and, and I, and so that was a big transition in my life and it has motivated me. I mean, it, we, I keep growing and keep evolving and keep changing, but it's changing from that kind of core motivation and core uh, inspiration rather than other mm-hmm. expectations I had taken along the way. Yeah. Is that about the time where kind of piecing together the interest was transhumanism came in? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I had actually, as a, as a teenager encountered, um, uh, you know, I I was in, uh, at at one point in my teenage years, I was in a small town in Oklahoma, um, thinking about all this kind of stuff about like, you know, if, if materiality is, is so important, if, if the material world is so significant, then science and technology can't be things that we leave out of that equation. Mm -hmm. They have to be part of our involvement in the world. They have to be part of our faith. They have to be part of our value system. And, you know, I was in a small town in Oklahoma. Nobody else was thinking about this kind of stuff. Okay, small town? So uh, it's called Pahuska, Oklahoma. And uh, I think it was about 1,500 people. It's about uh, an hour, hour and a half outside of uh, Tulsa. My family is Muskogee and Lake Eufaula. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Anyways, just random notes. Yeah, I worked for the uh, Osage Indian uh, tribe out there. And uh, yeah, that was, you know, very much um, part of that part of that culture. And I loved it. I I loved uh, Oklahoma and I love the tall grass (laughs) prairie out there. And um, but it's it's not it was not a very hotbed for uh, (laughs) transatlantic thought. Yeah. So I, 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 um, you know, I was finding, uh, at this point the web was new. I was finding, um, new communities to engage with online who were kind of addressing a lot of these questions or talking about them. And so I immediately started resonating with the secular transhumanist community. 
um, that I was encountering online. And at that point, um, most of them had had a terrible experience with religion. And um, so they were like, well, we know you're a Christian. You don't fit in this uh, conversation because we know what you're about. And, you know, you're about kind of like burning down the world. You're about getting out of here as soon as possible. You know, all this stuff. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, I'm like, that's not what I'm about. But I but I know that you've had a real experience that, you know, that points to that. Right. Um, so I was interested in it back then. Um and back in, yeah, around 2012, I started, you know, kind of got back into this and said, sort of looking around and said, are there any other people uh, coming from a faith background who are interested? And sure enough, uh, started finding some. And that's kind of where, yeah, that's kind of what led us to here. So you're in Nashville, but are there other groups? I mean, because it's, it's a brand new concept for myself. Mm-hmm. And so... Are there other Christian transhumanism groups within the states specifically, mm. or is this more a new concept for this United States? Yes. So the Christian Transhumanist Association, which uh, you know we put together in uh, uh, 2013 and then 2014 uh, officially organized, that's global, and so we have people. Uh, we have people in you know I guess pretty much every continent and kind of all over the states. But it's pretty sparse, right? It's not a very common common thing at all. But you're on one of the founders of the global. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. okay, yeah, and I mean, people have been talking about it in various ways for for years, but it's just mostly been a kind of underground conversation. Uh, and um, and actually, you know, we we trace when we look back at it, we're like, oh yeah, you know, people have been engaged in this for for eons, but um, yeah. It's 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 a little bit different um, to kind of put a put a name to it and to be able to say like, hey, here's some other people like you. And, you know, this is the thing that we had our our first conference back in um, August of 2018. And, you know, all kinds of people were like, yeah, I can't believe like this is the first time I've heard people talking about the things that I'm thinking about or wondering about. And so I think it's it's an interesting conversation. It probably is still a really weird conversation for most people, but I think there's a need there and a desire to talk about this stuff. Like obviously now, you know, because some of the work that you've done and this, you know, the organization that you've started, you know, it's it's making it easier for people who are energized and who are asking some of these questions and doing this sort of work. It's it's easier for you you all to find each other. But but you, you know you suggested a moment ago that that wasn't always the case. You know back in 2012 when you were really starting to like. Mm-hmm you know, really kind of think about these things. And it was, you know, there was a secular conversation, but there wasn't so much of a spiritual or religious or even Christian conversation. So how did you find these people initially? Mm. Like, like, what did that look like? Yeah. Um, well, I think I had, um, I think the first encounter I had with anybody, uh, I started finding out that there were, um, there were some Mormons who were into this stuff and Mormons, um, have some really interesting theological kind of quirks of their own, um, and so they had been involved for, for a while actually. And so it's very embodied, right? Mormon, Mormon eschatology, Mormon yeah. theology. I mean, even, even their, their, like their ontology, their understanding of the being of God, it's all very embodied. Yeah, very much so. Um, and so they, you know, yeah, their, their plan of salvation, their understanding of all that is, is incredibly material. So it, but it's also, 
uh, many of the people I encountered through this have a very complicated relationship with their faith tradition because there's a lot mm. of other aspects of Mormonism that they might not feel like they fit with. Sure. Very yeah. Well. Um, and so that's interesting. And when I first encountered um, some of these folks, I just saw that they were they were doing um, some different things. So I reached out and I asked, you know, if they were if they were aware of anybody else who was uh, talking about this stuff from a faith background. And, um, I, I, basically the answer was not really, um, but they invited me to, um, uh, you know, kind of participate along with them, which I was, I was surprised by. And, um, and we've been great friends for, for a lot of years and they've been, um, they've been real supportive and, but through, through them, cause you know, once you've got somebody who's talking about it, you start getting other people who are interested. Yeah. And so we, you know, have a really interesting kind of network of, of people coming from all different, you know, all different backgrounds. Um, and a few of them, you know, were first met through, um, you know, just saying, well, you know, what are these Mormons doing? Um, <laughs> and why can't we do the same thing? <laughs> you, you, infer, you know, you kind of alluded to it at the beginning, but you know, one of my biggest questions, you know, you know, okay, so I can understand the concept of, of transhumanism, you know, this idea of, you know, humanity becoming something else or transitioning to something else. Um, so I, I can wrap my head around that. And for the most part, I mean, I mean, go ahead and unpack it if, if it's helpful, but I, I, I can understand seeing this from a Christian perspective, you know, you know, you mentioned N.T. Wright, who similarly to you, for me, N.T. Wright was the first time that I really got someone who, at least for the most part, my church, you know, kind of my, my more conservative churches were open to me reading and, you know, didn't find him really, really scary. And, you know, so this idea of, you know, you know, salvation isn't isn't like an escape plan or anything like that. We're not we're not abandoning mm-hmm. the material world. We're, you know, re- reclaiming it. You know, he, you know, the phrase he loves is like setting the world to rights. And um, mm mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and so, yeah. So, so I can see, I can see there the connection then with this idea of transhumanism of, of trans, you know, instead of abandoning the material world, we're transforming it. It's evolving mm-hmm. in some way. And yet, the question remains. I'm, mm-hmm. uh, I'm curious about this, and I'm sure that maybe there's not one answer, but still, transforming from from human into what? What does this? What what a transhuman existence look like? And, and is this the same? I've heard. You know, I've heard kind of, I think, because I've, I've started following you on social media, I've heard about this idea of of post-humanism or post-humans as well. Is that talking mm-hmm. about the same thing or is that a completely different way of framing things? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of different kind of overlapping and intersection comments here or uh, con- concepts here. And um, so one way that some people talk about it is the idea that, well, we're human now. And we're going to transform into something else. So that's going to be post-human. And then transhuman is to be kind of in the process of change, right? To be um, becoming what we will be, even though we don't know um, yet what that is. And that has some resonances with the way that, uh, that, you know, Christianity talks about things. Um, You know, the the idea of like, we do not yet know what we will be, but when when we see him, we will, you know, be, be as he is. Yeah. Um, another, another framing of that is, uh, and this is the one I typically use is to say, well, um, to be human is to be in transformation at all times. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when I talk about 
transhuman and transhumanism. I'm not so much talking about um, what we will transform to. I'm talking about the fact that humanity is this transformational mm. uh, process, this transformational kind of entity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to accept that, to say that, okay, we're, you know, we're transhumanists is simply to embrace that fact. Is to say, okay, you know, let's we're we're part of this process. Let's be conscious about it instead of just kind of being reactionary or waiting to see what will happen. Let's see how we can um, think ahead and and steer our transformation in a positive direction, a direction that's positive for all life. Sure. Yeah, I hear resonance in there with with maybe some other theological trajectories, uh, mm-hmm. more open and relational theologies, process theologies. Mm-hmm. Do you feel you know as you've studied this and as you've explored it and really kind of maybe even expanded the conversation at least in a Christian sphere, mm-hmm. have you felt like you've had opportunities um, to to maybe dialogue maybe as a as as a distinct or acknowledged almost theological school like with someone who mm-hmm. identifies like you know maybe they're a a process scholar or or mm-hmm. a, a pastor even who maybe comes from a a process background it doesn't have to be process but but something like how have you found this real quick for those of us who don't know what's process scholar i'm not probably the the best uh person to explain this i'm sure um uh, some of the people we'll have on in the future could do it better, but process theology is is one um, form of theology. It's based on process philosophy. Really comes out of the work of uh, Alfred North Whitehead and um, Charles Hartshorn and a, a handful of other people, kind of in the last hundred hundred fifty years or so. And it's a way of understanding both God and the world and creation and the God world relationship. That to oversimplify, all of it is in process you know god's being humanity's being even the being of creation is very much in becoming and so it t- as opposed to kind of understanding things based on um essences you know kind of a very platonic or aristotelian way of kind of framing things um the being of things as esoteric as that sounds is in their to Micah's point, which is kind of where I, I, I keyed on this, um, in their evolution, in their becoming, in their in their kind of perpetual relationality and transformation, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Um, well, I, so our um, our membership in the the Christian Transhumanist Association comes from all over the uh, Christian world. So we've Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and um, and Presbyterians and Methodists and and Baptists and. Uh, uh, Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses and all kinds of stuff. And, um, and, and so each of them kind of tend to approach it in a different way. And, and um, being in that kind of a conversation in an environment has been great because it allows us to both to kind of like think about our, our theology with a little bit of an open hand, but also to see all the different ways that um, – you know, theology and our theological language can get at some of these concepts. And so, um, so there's absolutely um, some resonance um, with the stuff you mentioned. And it's, it's interesting just to see how it plays out and how we can all kind of like, you know, benefit from each other's kind of theological framing. Open theism is a similar kind of um, idea Mm -hmm. coming from a different sort of history or tradition. And we've definitely had a lot of uh, connections with that, the idea that the future is open-ended and God is interested in exploration. Um, and yeah, the idea that things are, um, 
things are always coming to be right that yeah like just like you said that's a that's a huge idea so for me i i anchor this like i almost everything else just in the genesis one story which i think is a really profound story in a way that we we typically miss but it shows god creating and god creates um unlike many different kind of creation uh, stories from the ancient world god creates purely from joy and and what you mm. see in that is that god's not micromanaging that creation god says you know let the earth bring forth vegetation and then he watches to see what it will do and he's he sees it and he declares it good right mm-hmm. and so this is the way that the creative process were shown in 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 this you know beginning story works is that god um, just is calling forth creation's own potential and, and just, mm-hmm. you know, delighting in it and, and, um, and blessing it and naming it and categorizing it. And then, you know, you get to this point where it's like the creation of humans, right? And the, these humans are made mm-hmm. in the image of God, which in that story, in that context, what this means is that humans are the, the same kind of creatures. We do this same thing. We call forth the creative potential of the world and we see it and we name it and we bless it and we categorize it. And those things are where we get technology. The idea of like, okay, we're going to understand you know, what the, the world consists of. We're going to name these different aspects of it. Um, and then the idea that we're going to try to call forth its own potential um, what it essentially wants to do. And so, so that idea that we are the image of God is an idea that we are transformational beings, that our fundamental nature is both to transform and to be transformed. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. Oh yeah. I really love that idea. I re wow. That is not a way I've processed that before. Just th- thinking mm. about the vegetation and just how, particles and and then the water and the plankton and everything grows Mm. and then just that's a really good perception that i think is new to a lot of us well there's you know and it goes back to this idea of like um all our different theologies the problem to me not isn't so much like getting the correct uh one way to think about it it's removing the incorrect versions (laughs) it's removing the harmful um ideas and so this idea of like escapism is not, I would say it's not really there, but we read it into it. Right. And, and so then we see it everywhere because we've, we've, you know, we've read it into it. And then that escapism becomes this kind of um, toxic thing inside our theology. Problem is not that we need to, you know, throw out our theology or throw out our scripture or something like that. It's just, we need to remove these dangerous ideas that have been put in there. And, you know, for many of us, you grow up with that. It really gets, very, very difficult to see around those toxic ideas, but yeah, mm-hmm. and scary and simply scary because it's like, what if we see around mm-hmm. them and there's nothing there? What if we see around them and we mm-hmm. are completely wrong? Man, it's yeah. that letting go. But just from growing up and having a childhood that was based on let's just make it through this life so we can right. get to heaven, <laughs> yeah. and. Yeah. Being where I am now and just thinking, wow, that's such a sucky feeling because there's so much to this life and what God has created Mm -hmm. and the evolution of how the things he's created have become just these awesome gifts on this planet. Um, And to miss out on that because 
all I want to do is just make it through, right. you know, right. like, <laughs> I know it's, it's, but it's such a, it's so baked into the way that so many of us talk about uh, our faith that it just challenging that idea is, you know, probably the majority of what I, <laughs> what I spend time on. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is like <laughs> Mount Everest hurdle. <laughs> Not impossible, yeah. but holy heck, yeah. yeah. So let's get practical with this then. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and there's a couple different trajectories, uh, you know, that I feel like I could ask practical questions and, and I don't know, maybe we'll have time to explore all of them, but at least one of them is I think about other forms of, and I, and I say other because I'm sort of almost presuming to categorize transhumanism or Christian transhumanism even into almost a justice category mm-hmm. in the sense like uh, the, the, I, I, I can see naturally how, how it can fit in that sense. And so so how do you feel like, you know, maybe Christian transhumanism intersects with, you know, climate justice, for example, that one seems like a low hanging fruit for me. But uh, but also, I mean, I mean, you know, there's a lot of identity, notions of identity and what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to you know, who are we, what is being and stuff like that wrapped into this. So, you know, so I think about, you know, a lot of the things that, I mean, this is kind of a loaded topic, but a lot of the things that, you know, the church is talking about right now. So wrestling with, you know, sexuality, gender, you know, LGBTQ plus identities, the church is hopefully, and I'm not sure how well we're doing, but at least some corners of the church are hopefully in the process of rooting out, you know, things like white supremacy and patriarchy, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. I don't know. I, f- I feel like, you know, as you're describing this, and as you're unpacking this, and even some of the energy that I can, that I can sense in you behind it, I feel like it's, it, it's really fertile soil to, to, to dialogue with different theologies and movements for justice and, 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 and liberating ethics and things like that at this level of identity. And so have you, mm-hmm. has that been a, do you feel like that's been a live conversation as you've, uh, you and others who are interested in Christian transhumanism or just transhumanism more broadly, even outside of the Christian sphere? Are these conversations going on, do you feel like? Yeah, the, um, they are. And um, what's what's hard to do is to kind of nail down where they are and what they're, you know, what they're um, leading to, because transhumanism does challenge our, our very notion of identity, Mm -hmm. right? Like, um, and I think in the secular conversation, um, one of the weaknesses of that is that you challenge your notion of identity, but you maybe don't have anything really compelling to, uh, replace it with. Mm -hmm. Right. So you, you've kind of let go of one kind of idea of human nature as this fixed thing, but what, what then are you going to cling to? And that leads mm-hmm. to, you know, I think it, to a different extent, our, all of our society maybe is struggling with this. Like what kind of, how do we anchor our identity? And so you mentioned like these white uh, supremacist movements and so forth. You know, th- these, I see what, what I see, I, I went to a, a, I protested at a, a, a white nationalist rally that happened uh, here in Tennessee a while back. And um, what I saw was, you know, there's, there's these people who are like, struggling for a sense of identity and this is the only thing they can figure out you know which is terrible it's it's destructive yeah. and and terrible but they're trying to fill some kind of need that for some reason hasn't been met in traditional religion mm-hmm. right sure and so so we have this like we have this unfolding dynamic all around us where we've got yeah all these questions about identity and who we are and what our you know mission is and all that and that's where i think um you know those are religious questions. Those are, those are, those are, um, questions of faith. And unfortunately our faith has, uh, in many ways 
forgotten or lost the ability to speak meaningfully to those things. So yeah, we have to we have to get into that and and kind of re-anchor everything and to say, okay, well, where do we, you know, where do we start? Um, how do we build back up something that's meaningful uh, if our old categories no longer make sense? And so this idea of, of humanity as uh, transformational, as, um, as kind of rooted in the, the creative process itself, like this is the core thing that we kind of bring into the world. Uh, it speaks to so much of what's going on uh, from from questions of gender and sexuality to questions of AI. And, you know, if we lose our jobs to robots, what does that mean about us? You know, all these kinds sure, of yeah. all these kinds of things, yeah. they're all connected uh, to some of these central questions. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's definitely connected. Another thing that I mean, this this one's more personal to me, I'm a I. I'm a youth pastor at, at, at the church that Becca and I are part of. And one of the biggest anxieties that parents have is technology. Mm. You know, it's, it's phones, it's Fortnite, it's, you know, screen addiction, you know, things like that. And, you know, and, and you hear the language of like technology is becoming part of us, you know, the mm-hmm. phone is like, a mm-hmm. you, you know, is like, you know, part of our, our being part of our body. And, and I hear that. And yet to be honest, in a lot of the, the study that I do for myself, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are kind of saying, oh, I mean, some of these fears are, you know, they're sensationalized maybe in the media or, you know, there's anecdotal evidence that kind of proves, you know, it turns out to kind of be a hearsay as far as like, you know, these horror stories that happen and, and, and on the more optimistic side, um, you know, you hear stories of like, no, in fact, it's, it's, it's things like gaming and mm-hmm. social networks that, that younger generations, not just maybe millennials, which is my generation, you know, but these, like these Gen Z kids, like, you know, they're kind of out ahead, maybe, you know, you know, yeah. there are, there are things that they're picking up naturally, like, yes, it, technology is part of it, they're evolving, but, it, but it's not just the, te- the, the technology is a, is a medium or a tool, they themselves are the ones evolving to a changing culture, a changing cultural landscape and stuff like that. And so it's a much more positive mm-hmm. spin. And, you know, I've kind of felt like been helpful to be able to kind of share that with parents and encourage parents in that way. So where do you feel like your work fits into that discussion of, you know, kind of fears over technology versus the benefits, things like that? Yeah. Um, so a lot of people in the transhumanist, like uh, the kind of cliched stereotype of transhumanist is like kind of um, just cheerleaders for technology. Right. And, uh, you know, people who think, you know, the latest things are, are you know, just uh, just really cool, you know, and um, <laughs> and um, and so we've kind of we've taken, you know, uh, pains to kind of say, well, that's not that's not the. Um, end goal. It's not the aim. It's not just to have like, um, new things for the sake of new things. Um, it's actually because we think there are new, um, possibilities for human connection and for, uh, meaning and purpose and, and, um, and belonging and, and doing good and so forth. And so like the, the social media landscape that we have has unleashed like vast chaos Mm -hmm. in the world. Right. (laughs) And, um, probably more than we the, we recognize, um, but it also has brought um, incredible potential for connection. And you know, I my grandmother is on on Facebook, and I um, connect with her more regularly and in a way that I would never get to um, otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, there, we're 
we're heading into all these different changes, I think what what we're kind of tasked with is figuring out how to um, recapture some of the things that um, maybe are not as in focus, you know, so um, it's easy to connect with, you know, thousands of people at a time right now, which is uh, great, but it's also easy to do that in a really kind of low bandwidth Mm -hmm. way where we're uh, essentially all we have is like, you know, a text uh, from somebody and that's their, that's how we interpret them, you know, for the rest of their lives, you know, based on one thing that they, that we see. And, and this has created a situation where we all are like becoming our own press secretaries Mm -hmm. and like all, you know, and um, we're (laughs) all like little, you know, little micro celebrities trying to manage our image and all this kind of stuff. And it's the, you know, the problem with that is that that's, you know, that misses a huge amount of communication. So what I see with, with younger people is actually like an effort to bring back some of that stuff. Even if you, and I, I cannot, uh, you know, stay on Snapchat or whatever, but, but the, um, but that idea of like, we're going to move away from text-based communication to something that's more expressive, mm-hmm. more emotive, um, able to share more of, of what our feelings are, uh, as we see like people using, you know, animated GIFs as a, as a communication mechanism, uh, emoji as, as a communication mechanism to remove that, that need to rely so heavily on our kind of our left brain mm-hmm. uh, way of processing information and move to something that's more consistent with kind of the complete, you know, picture of what we are. And I think, yeah, I think young people are, are like diving headfirst into that. And I think that's necessary and important for us kind of as a society. Mm, yeah. No, that makes sense. What are your thoughts on how do we bring <laughs> Gen X, mm. um, which I am in the line of Gen X slash millennial? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm just married to millennial, so I feel younger. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, how do we bring that older generation to see that? Because they are so focused mm-hmm. in a one way. This is how you do it. This is how we protect our children. Mm-hmm. You know, it's how do we bridge that gap? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I mean, the the thing is that the the fears are uh, are real, um, and it and the the thing is always that we can't we can't just downplay the fears. We can't just downplay the dangers. They're mm-hmm. always there. What we have to realize is that um, life consists of of danger, right? Like life mm-hmm. is about risk, and um, if you are trying to raise kids, um, you know you need to be raising kids to be prepared to handle large amounts of risk and to really grapple with that. And, you know, I, I, I feel like that's something that I did get from my, my family is um, we were expected just to, to kind of uh, go out in the world and explore and experiment and do all kinds of stuff. And uh, it, we, we always knew that was going to be hard work, but we always knew we could kind of end up um, in all kinds of different worlds effectively. And, um, that's a kind of mindset. There is no, there is no plan left. You know, there is no, like, uh, you know, I talk about like, um, my grandparents, you know, may grew up in a world in which you could kind of enter a company, uh, at the bottom and work your way up to the top and, and expect mm-hmm. to be there for the entirety of your career. You know, you could work at one, yeah. one company for the entire time. And then for my parents, that was less the case. And then for, you know, our generation, it's, um, 
almost not the case at all. And, you know, lots of people I know are working jobs and even careers that didn't exist five Mm -hmm. years ago. You know, Mm -hmm. this is the kind of, this is the world that we um, are finding ourselves in. And this, the thing to do is to figure out how to uh, embrace that. Uh, because really this is a more human way to be, um, you know, that, the mm-hmm. idea of like working for one company for, you know, for an entire career, that, that wasn't what our ancient ancestors were like, you know, they didn't, that's not the way that they lived. And so in some ways we're getting back to almost a more hunter gatherer lifestyle. <laughs> mm, yeah. I've never had it framed that way, but I, I, I see what you mean by that. Where in your mind does, where does narrative fit into this? Because, mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, just like a pop culture, for example, I know, I, you know, you know, I know you've kind of looked at transhumanism, uh, you know, I, I got to peruse your, your blog, your website a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. you have a post on, on you know, a little bit on Black Panther, on Lego mm-hmm. Batman. Um, and I just think of like some of the movies that have come out in the past year, you know, you got mm-hmm. like, you know, Alita Battle Angel, the adaptation mm-hmm. of the, the, the manga and the anime, uh, a movie like Ready Player One adapted mm-hmm. from Ernst Klein's novel, um, Maybe that maybe I'm being reductive here, but you know, you know, cyborgs and virtual reality, you know, that seems like it falls under the transhumanist umbrella. Yeah. Now, this is sci-fi, but I mean, some of what you're talking about is sci-fi becoming reality. I mean, we're talking, you know, how many movies, you know, Terminator, The Matrix, iRobot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you got all these movies kind of about the existential anxiety of artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. and, and now you got guys like Bill Gates and and and. Um, Elon Musk debating this in in real life and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. so where does narrative, whether you know, you know, from a fictional standpoint, like pop culture, sci-fi, fantasy, and stuff like that, but also, you know, to your point about embracing this new reality and, and sort of painting a picture that's more palatable or tangible for people. Like, I don't know, it's a broad question. I realize, I apologize, but but where does <laughs> narrative? And kind of telling yeah. the story kind of fit in in your mind to all of this. Well, I think that I think that the stories we tell ourselves are one of the most consequential things we have, and um, mm-hmm. the you know, and this is what uh, Christian scripture is. It's a big story, and it's a it's a vast story that um, you know people miss. Uh, that basically, it's it's about how a young um, struggling species kind of comes into its own. Um, it's a kind of a coming of age story. And the, the end of it is that we bring the entire cosmos to life. Like we, we bring the, Mm. the, we bring about a technological, um, ecological humanistic civilization. That's always kind of bringing life to the world. Um, and that's, um, that's a that's a story that that for many parts of Christianity is just entirely missing, right? And so, yeah. when we miss that story, um, we have to we have to figure out which story we're we're living. And we we uh, I think the stories we tell ourselves in pop culture are often kind of our struggle to find our way back to some kind of meaningful and useful story. And, um, you know, if you grew up with the Terminator or the matrix or something, you know, these are very pessimistic stories about what our future holds because maybe we're not able to conceive of a positive future. You know, this is, this is something we're struggling Mm -hmm. with. We're wrestling with what do you even look like to be, 
to be a, a positive future. So the the prominence of of stories like Ready Player One and Alita Battle Angel and and some of these that are exploring new ways to get into these stories about the future and technology, I like that fills me with a lot of hope. And the the Lego uh, movie series is one of the most inspiring things that I have ever <laughs> seen because it's this idea. Um, you know, if you think about what Legos are, they're technologies, and um, it's the Lego movie contrast with the Matrix. If you, it, it's it's remarkable that what uh, the people in the matrix realize is that their world was built out of technology and mm. they realize that that's a prison and they have to escape. Right. But the Lego movie yeah. gives you a whole different story, a whole different eschatology. It's their world is built out of technology. They realize this, they find out that, that um, other beings out there have been building their world and they say, ah, this is an opportunity for us to join in the play. Mm. Like this is an opportunity mm. for us to build and create as well. Oh, I like and that. this is, I mean, I think this is, uh, it's fantastic. And uh, you mentioned Alita battle angel. Um, this is, you know, the setup is very similar to um, maybe Elysium with, uh, mm, yeah. with uh, Matt Damon um, where there's kind of the rich people in the sky yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, you know, some kind of city in the sky who have all the good things. And then down here on earth, there's a lot of, uh, you know, just poverty and, and sickness and everybody wants to get up to that place in the sky. And, it, you know, the kind of premise of it is that there is no way to cross that divide, right? Like it's per permanently kind of, um, we, we have this severed situation. We can't reconcile, um, the use of technology and the use of all this stuff with, with our actualities of our world. But Alita Battle Angel actually changes that picture, even though it's set up very similar. There's kind of like the rich people in the sky and there's the poor people down on earth. There's yet a higher uh, level of people. And I hope I'm not, this is no, not too much Mars. of a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there's, there's people on Mars, right? And the people on Mars are interested in coming down to earth to liberate us from our oppressive empires so that we can join in that kind of creative process. Um, and so this to me is fantastic because it, it really, it reorients a lot of those kind of dystopian stories and gives us a new way to approach them. And Alita, you know, is, is um, she's a cyborg. Uh, other people in the movie are uh, basically questioning her humanity mm -hmm. or don't think, you know, like, um, you know, there's, there's this thing between like pure humans and cyborg humans and so forth. And the idea is that even someone we see as an outcast or from the outside might be the, the person we need to kind of come in and help us transform our society and, and essentially save yes. the day. Excellent. Sorry, Becca. Um, <laughs> I'm just uh, taking it all in. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go get Jesse. So, so, so this reminded me, you, you tweeted something, and I feel like it's kind of consistent with what you're talking about here. Um, this was like a, a month or two ago. You're talking about the 80s. You, you called it your Uber theory of the 80s mm -hmm. and that 80s nostalgia, which yeah. I have, <laughs> even though I was born in the late mm -hmm. 80s. So you, you're describing something that I've experienced mm -hmm isn't trying to relive the past. It's trying to, I'm, I'm worried people aren't, aren't, aren't going to understand what I'm, uh, aren't going to hear the word they say, hard fork, like fork in the road. 
um, the timeline. I said fork, yeah. like the utensil. Um, and, and, and so you talk about yeah. you talk about like there was a time, you know, at least in Western history, where we could remember, like we could envision a future. So you talk about the space race, and then the eighties, and then that's mm-hmm. gone now. So so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could just read the tweets, but I think it would be mm-hmm. more interesting if you unpacked it. I think um, what we uh, what we're kind of struggling with, like I mentioned, you know, like we're struggling with the sense of, you know, what's our identity, what's our purpose, what's our mission as a society, as a species, as individuals, and um, and so we've kind of come to this point where we're like, oh, we need a we need a vision of what kind of future we're building, like you know, to to bring us mm-hmm. together and and help us to. Uh, do something meaningful with all this power we've amassed. Um, and uh, when we, when we look back and say, okay, well, where do we, where do we get a vision of the future from a vision of a positive future? We only have a few places in our history where we actually did feel a strong vi- positive vision of the future. And one of those is, um, is, you know, maybe, maybe in the fifties leading up to the the space race, there was a lot of optimism there. And then one of them is the eighties and, and you see them both kind of centering around these different, you know, technological visions. One of which is like, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to, we're going to get to the moon. We're going to land on the moon and we're going to, mm-hmm. um, it's going to be this glorious kind of new day, you know, the Jetsons, like, you know, like all this. <laughs> right. Um, and then you have in the eighties, you know, you just have the, the introduction of the computer and it's, it's, it comes, the personal computer comes out of this very like hippie aesthetic. Like we're going to use technology to liberate people and to free people. And so you get a lot of stuff that, that's, that's ultimately growing out of that. And so you have these, these two major touch points in American history. And you see, I think, uh, different political movements trying to anchor themselves on one of those touch points, you know, um, where they're like trying to envision society, you know, essentially go back to, in order to go forward. Um, and, and so what's interesting about the eighties is because it was, um, with, you know, the introduction of computers and all these other things, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it has this intrinsic diversity to it. Um, there's this, you know, it's, it's not just like, we're going to be the Jetsons and that's kind of like the fifties in space, right? It's, this exploration of different modes of being that have been unlocked from with, you know, from both culturally and with our technology. And so I think what we're trying to do and what we see in this eighties nostalgia is this attempt to go back to that and say, okay, what was this? Just like I was talking about Mm -hmm. with, with my kind of, you know, back what, what motivated me, what I cared about as Mm -hmm. a teenager, you know, what, what was this, what motivated it, what drove it and where did we go off track? Um, and Mm -hmm. because you, you have a lot of optimism in the eighties and then as you go into the nineties, it turns really pessimistic and I grew up on Mm -hmm. and love nineties music, but that is some of the most depressing music (laughs) you've ever encountered. Right. And, um, it's, you know, and we get those movies out of it. We get the matrix we get this idea that we've already basically been consumed by something, you know, dark. Um, and you know, the matrix is just like, you know, <laughs> the, the vision of the matrix is that, Hey, the nineties is the, um, the, you know, it's the, basically the prison we're all in, right? Like, right. <laughs> and we're trying to escape. We're just trying to get out of there somehow into something different. Even if it's like, uh, we're living on gruel and stuff, it's better than that. <laughs> that like, that's the setup for the, the matrix. 
And, um, and so there's somewhere in there that between, you know, between this kind of eighties optimism and the just whole spirit of the nineties, we really like lost something. And so I think what we're trying to do culturally is to go back, get back to the eighties and try to move forward in a different way where we don't lose the, the thread of optimism, uh, in the process. Um, and so I think ready player one, you mentioned is a great example of that. That's literally what they're trying to do. Like just go back to the eighties to rebuild a better future on top of Mm -hmm. that's the premise. Um, I think that maybe is a really literal, uh, version of of what our society (laughs) is doing. So, so I could riff on this for hours. Um, we don't have yes, that, and, and and I think we'd lose half of our potential <laughs> listenership. Um, I have one more question, um, and then I'll be done. Uh, not a pop culture question. This is uh, I'm cutting myself off, but with all of this, um, how would you? The notion of salvation mm. is. Mm so key so pivotal to christianity and that's one of that that's been one of the biggest points of like deconstruction mm-hmm. reconstruction whatever you want to call that you, you know kind of reimagining mm-hmm. for me is how you know if if we're if we're saying at least we know it's not you know because earlier you talked about let's at least get rid of the bad theologies mm-hmm. so if it's not escaping mm-hmm. if it's not if it's not kind of punting the answer of what salvation mm-hmm. is to some post-mortem existence elsewhere um, what is it? And, and, mm-hmm. and maybe there's not mm-hmm. one answer, but, but for you, you know, speak for yourself in this, yeah. in, you know, you know, kind of in this tradition really that you're kind of pioneering in many ways, um, from a Christian perspective, what is salvation for a Christian transhumanist? Mm. Yeah. Um, so, tri- uh, salvation as I understand it, um, is, the opportunity to participate in the work of God. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you look at the, the biblical narrative, this idea that this is what we were created for, we were created to be creative, right? To, to participate in the work of God in cultivating uh, the, the world and bringing life. And then mm-hmm. something we did um, somewhere along the way um, cost us a lot of that ability. Um, and I think what that, what that looks like if you just kind of look very closely at it is that we, um, from our own fear, from our own shame, um, we get consumed with, um, the need to, uh, uh, basically a fear of death. And we use that to, to become very violent and destructive towards other people. And so if we're violent and destructive towards other people, we're going to be violent and destructive towards all life. And that's basically the, the Noah story is like, everything is terrible because humans have lost the, the trail. And, Mm. um, and so salvation is the opportunity to, um, to escape our own destructiveness and rejoin God in God's purposes. And this is exactly what you get in the Noah story um, is that Noah is a peacemaker. That's what his name means. And Mm -hmm. um, his, his task uh, that God gives him is to go out and create a giant technological artifact, Mm -hmm. as I call it, um, from which he is not just going to save humanity. He is going to save the rest of animal life, right? Mm, he is going to yeah. um, take, uh, you know, in the Genesis story, Adam's original job, which was to care for and cultivate all this animal life, 
That's what Noah is called to do. And he's called to use his technology and his effort and his work to cultivate the world and to help preserve and protect life. And that's the key biblical image of salvation. When you look in the Mm. New Testament, that's always the story Mm. they're referring back to. It's always in the background. It's like you can rejoin in the work of God. And so we think about like Noah was saved because he wasn't killed in the flood. But the real like biblical idea is Noah was saved because he was given the opportunity to participate in God's work and bringing Mm. life and doing that sort of uh, work in creation. And so that's that's exactly what I think it is. Um, Hmm. is, and I think, you know, we get that through Christ in so many ways, but Christ, Christ is the rejoining of, Hmm. of the work of God, right? Christ, Christ brings back this idea of like what humanity is to do and it's to heal and give life to create new Hmm. things. Um, and so, yeah, Yeah. that's what, that's what salvation means for me. Love it. Thank you. That was, that was awesome. I'm good. I, I, I feel, I feel I got I got to nerd out a little bit. I got some I got some theological nuggets to chew on. So, I mean, my boxes and I'm yeah, my boxes have been checked. This is this, <laughs> this has been excellent for me. How was it for you? So yeah. glad that it was fulfilling for you. <laughs> oh, Micah. So, how can um, people find? out more about your work, about transhumanism, um, all the things, where do they go? Yeah. So the, the, uh, place for, uh, finding out about, uh, transhumanism and the Christian, uh, involvement with this is just Christian transhumanism.org. Um, and we have links there to all kinds of stuff. You can link to the Christian transhumanist podcast where I kind of interview uh, different thinkers in religion and technology and science, uh, bringing people together that don't normally talk in the same kind of uh, arena. Um, And we have our our kind of community uh, is involved there. So christiantranshumanism.org, that will kind of connect you to our Facebook group and other, other kinds of things. Um, my stuff is um, micaredding.com, and that's where I kind of typically write more in depth on how I'm interpreting the biblical story, how I'm understanding what Christian theology is actually saying in a what I feel like is a useful and meaningful uh, way in kind of our modern context. Um, so yeah, those would be the, the primary ways, I guess. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will put all of those links um, in our show notes. So it'll be easy for you to find. Um, Micah, thank you so much um, for coming on and just having a great discussion this evening. Um, I know David's boxes were all checked (laughs) tonight, which is great. And for me, um, there was a lot of thoughts that are just brand new. And that is thrilling. That's part of um, the evolving. And um, yeah, you talked about that salvation experience Mm. and becoming more like Christ and and being a part of that. And I think this is a nugget of it Mm. as well. Mm. So thank you you. so much. Yeah. It's uh, thanks for the, all these questions. That's uh, fantastic. And it's, you know, it's great to talk with people who are willing to kind of jump off into some, some fun and interesting and different uh, kind of, topics. So yeah, thanks so much for having me. Anytime, anytime. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests in the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.